Welcome to Secret Police, the show where we explore the history and methods of some of the world's most brutal secret police forces. This is the very first episode of this show, and the first in a series on Russian secret policing, starting with the Oprichniki. From 1565 to 1572, the Oprichniki served under Tsar Ivan IV, better known as Ivan the Terrible, as his personal guard and secret police force within designated territories in Muscovy. We'll briefly explore Russia during this time period, Ivan's progression into power, and then the real meat of this show, the secret police, the Oprichniki. Buckle up. I intend for this show to be as real and raw as possible, really giving you a a dark picture of the brutality us humans are capable of inflicting upon one another, and the sadistic methods of which these agencies employ to squash dissent and further the goals of a totalitarian state. Consider this your content warning. There cannot be a show about secret police without touching on the concept of authoritarianism. Allow me to speak from some limited personal experience here. In the past few years, authoritarianism is something that's really piqued my interest. Not because I want to practice it myself, but because the contrast in human behavior between those in power and those not in power are fascinating to me. I'd be aware of autocrats from watching the news and just being an observant person curious about the world, but I think this interest got a boost from watching The Death of Stalin, a satirical film very loosely based on, you guessed it, the death of Soviet General Secretary Joseph Stalin. I'd been aware of Stalin too, but after watching that movie, I went down the rabbit hole on Soviet history and my interest branched out to authoritarianism in general. Now, I've had the relative privilege in my life of having grown up in the United States of modest means, and as far as I know, haven't had many brushes with authoritarianism. And I realize that that experience may not necessarily be the case for everybody in the US. Probably the most authoritarian place I've been is China back in 2001. But I definitely wasn't thinking about authoritarianism as an eight-year-old. Fast forward to 2013 when it was revealed that the United States National Security Agency, or the NSA, employed a massive surveillance system to internet, phone, and other electronics to monitor chatter for national security threats, a program that amounts to wiretapping and spying. As somebody who in 2013 wasn't that active on social media, I didn't take this revelation too seriously, but I could see the scary reality that such a program had far-reaching consequences. Fast forward about seven years to the summer of 2020. I was living in South Minneapolis when George Floyd was killed. Protests erupted in my city and across the US, and there were serious calls for police reform and outright abolition of policing institutions entirely, all against the backdrop of a pandemic. To be honest, the protests in Minneapolis terrified me especially with all the rumors flying around about various groups in my neighborhood, Antifa, Klansmen, gangs, and even drug cartels. It didn't help that the news media was flirting with the idea of a second civil war. These are terrifying prospects 
or a young father like me who is also prone to anxiety and paranoia. I wanted it all to stop. I wanted everybody to go home and behave themselves. Stop looting, stop burning, stop protesting altogether. I wanted somebody to take control. Then it hit me. I desired authoritarianism under these circumstances. And seriously, this is coming from a brown guy. I wanted the cops to get control of the situation. Maybe deep down, we all have a threshold where authoritarianism appears to be the least worst option. Then I heard about the protests in Portland, Oregon. Some people were pulled off the street into white vans by presumably federal law enforcement. I remember thinking, that's some Soviet kidnapping shit right there. In fact, if you go on Google Trends, which tracks the popularity of Google search terms, the phrase secret police has a five-year long-run search popularity average of about 10 out of 100. However, in July 2020, the term secret police hit 100 out of 100. Interestingly, popular related search terms included secret police in Portland, Portland secret police, Trump secret police, and for some reason, Stalin's secret police. Clearly, law enforcement's handling of the summer's events garnered a strong reaction from the public. Eventually, the protests in Minneapolis lost their energy and became less violent and more peaceful in the weeks following Floyd's death. And for the most part, it seemed like the city went back to normal and my desire for authoritarianism waned. I struggled with that, though. I still struggle with those thoughts. How can I, as an American, ever desire authoritarianism? Which might be a silly question. When I know full well that dictators are a short-term solution to long-term problems that are further compounded by a single ruler and their subsequent corruption. Like I said, I think many of us would be willing to put aside some liberties to an authoritarian regime given the right circumstances. Think about it. What would it take for you to want a single leader or small coalition to make all the laws and decisions? Would you be more likely to support such a government structure if you agreed politically with or directly benefited from such a regime? And that's the scariest part. When we agree, we shut our minds off and get comfy. I am 100% guilty of this too. But when we agree is when we should examine our beliefs and values the most. Now, so you know, I am not a historian or a political scientist. I have a bachelor's degree in economics, and I'm currently completing a master's in epidemiology. So my main focus and training is in the medical field. I host another show called Head Cold, which is all medical-related content. Secret Police is my little history project, and I, it's certainly not an, an endorsement of, of uh, political ideology or a particular party. I created this show as an exploration on how authoritarians operate through secret police and to satisfy my taste for the dark and disturbing. However, it is not lost on me that this show is being released while in the United States we are having serious conversations about law enforcement. Before I continue, everything you just heard I wrote in December 2021. It is also not lost on me that when this is released, we will still be in the midst or feeling the consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which I have to admit turned my attention to working on this show since we are starting with Russian secret police. 
And I hope that this situation in Ukraine will come to a peaceful conclusion and that civilians can stop being bombed and stop being hurt. Now back to everything I wrote in December. So what are secret police? To break down the terms, a secret is something hidden away or something known to few people. Police are tasked with maintaining order and enforcing the laws. But there isn't anything super secret about enforcing laws. And even in authoritarian regimes, it's understood there are certain things you can't do or say about the government. But the secret part makes more sense when considering the clandestine nature of secret police work. Political police is probably a more precise definition because these forces have the authority to enforce the political agenda of the administration on the citizens by any means necessary, including terror, torture, and re-education. Political police is a more precise definition because these forces have the authority to enforce the political agenda of the administration on the citizens by any means necessary, including terror, torture, and re-education. Sheena Chestnut Greitin, associate professor at the LBJ School at University of Texas at Austin, characterized such police agencies as coercive institutions, stating, quote, Autocrats who aspire to stay in power must address a range of threats. Optimizing a coercive apparatus to deal with each type of political threat, however, would produce different coercive, coercive institutional designs for each threat. End quote. Secret police are a tool for autocratic regimes to enforce government's political ideology, loyalty to the ruler and suppress opposition using any means necessary, again, up to and including death. This is the crude definition I've chosen to refer to as a base for examining the Opochniki and others moving forward. I may say political police or secret police, but secret police is my preferred term, given it's the name of this show, and the one I think most people understand. I may throughout this show make comparisons to police forces in the United States because I live here in the U.S. and I'm, I'm obviously most familiar with American police and American policing. And I'll make such a comparison right now. You may have noticed, if you live in the U.S. or some other Western country, policing is largely absent of a political mandate. Yes, you may say, well, many cops have a certain political leaning or the police are protected by a biased system, which in some places is true, but the police don't exist to uncover who hates the state's governor, for example, and arrest them on, the base, on that basis alone. Let's go back to the NSA example for a moment. The NSA's data collection program was performed under the guise of national security. The NSA was not collecting intelligence on specific political figures or groups primarily. However, on second thought of this, I'm going to stamp a big maybe on here because I think they were monitoring certain U.S.-based groups for political reasons. Okay, but the monitoring wasn't conducted to make politically motivated arrests. The Obama administration was not using the NSA to enforce support for, say, the Affordable Care Act. Although, again, I seem to remember when this news broke, 
It was either evidence or accusation of the NSA spying on political rivals. There is a lot of discussion on how the government seems to approach political right and political left differently, but that's another discussion for a different episode. And secret police perform a hodgepodge of different functions. A bona fide secret police force seems more like a paramilitary group than your coffee-drinking, donut-eating city cops. Secret police collect intelligence, meaning they spy. They employ terror, often use torture, and engage in political promotion, etc. And the Oprichniki were not so different from this. To understand the creation of the Oprichniki, we have to look at the progress of then a young Russia. In the 9th century BCE, Vikings sailed across the Dnieper, the Don, and the Volga rivers in modern-day Russia, exploring the vast lands and protecting the local Slavic people from foreign invaders. Some called these river-faring Vikings Rus, and the Slavic peoples became associated with the Rus because the Slavic and Viking societies were becoming intertwined. Hence the name Russia, or Russia, or in German, Rusland two governing townships were formed, one in Novgorod and the other in Kiev. Or Kiev if you're Ukrainian, the the capital city of modern-day Ukraine. Eventually, these cities united and established the Kievan Rus, which would rule this region for the next three centuries with the seat of power in Kiev. Governmental power shifted with a series of invasions by the Tatars, starting in 1223, that successively took control of Russia and leveled Kiev in 1240. For 200 years, this golden horde ruled over Russia, and in that time, a small state in the central plain was gradually able to establish influence, that state being the Grand Duchy of Moscow. They did so not by resisting the Tartars, but by working with them. Tartar rule, however, did not last forever. Battles between the Tartars and Muscovites dislodged the Tartars from control of Moscow. This further compounded defeat for the Tartars and strengthened Moscow's influence. Ivan the Great, a different Ivan from the one we're interested in today, cut off all monetary payments to the Tartars in 1480. Not only did Ivan the Great stick it to the Tartars, but he also expanded Russian territory to the west, north, and northeast in 1478. He also married the niece of the Byzantine emperor in 1472. A bit more back history here. The seat or throne of the Greek Orthodox Christian Church had been in Constantinople, in present-day Istanbul, Turkey, until the city was taken over by the Islamic Ottoman Empire. With Ivan's marriage to this royal Byzantine family member, Russia embraced the Byzantine Empire's Orthodox Christian traditions. Ivan even borrowed the symbol of a double-headed eagle and crowned himself Caesar, or Tsar. The double-headed eagle is supposed to symbolize a united Russia, one eagle looking west and the other looking east, connected by the same body. Ivan the Great was eventually succeeded by his son, Vasily III. And Vasily was eventually succeeded by our dictator of interest today, Ivan IV, better known as Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible was born in 1530 to the Grand Prince of Moscow, Vasily III, and Vasily's second wife, Yelena Glinskaya. 
1533, Ivan assumed the title of Grand Prince of Moscow following the death of Vasily. That's right, a three-year-old essentially became czar. Now, Ivan's mom ruled in his name until her untimely death. Both Ivan's parents were likely victims of a power struggle within a class of noblemen called the Boyars. The Boyars were a wealthy class in Russia at the time, perhaps the oligarchs of their time. The fact that the prince was so young and parentless yielded the perfect opportunity for the Boyars to manipulate Ivan for their own pursuit of influence and power. Not surprisingly, this power struggle was bloody and extremely violent. This was the environment young Ivan was exposed to, an environment of violence, murder, and death without parental guidance. The Boyars didn't know it, but they were shooting themselves in the foot since their behavior solidified in Ivan a great prejudice for the Boyer class. Murderous power struggle lasted from 1538 to 1547 when Ivan was crowned Tsar and Grand Prince of all of Russia and married Anastasia Romanova. From Ivan's view, he wanted to establish and strengthen a Christian state. Early in Ivan's reign, he reorganized the government by centralizing power and dividing state functions into respective departments. Ivan updated the legal code that had been in place since 1497, and he further embraced Christian orthodoxy and canonized many Russian saints. Ivan also moved to limit the power of the traditional aristocracy, like the Boyars. Russia was, however, at war during most of Ivan's reign, with constant fears of Tatar incursions and military intervention against other political entities in the East and the South. But Ivan also had his sights set westward towards Europe, where Ivan believed a link to the Baltic Sea would be invaluable for future trade with Russia. The only thing in his way to the Baltic Sea was Livonia, a country that included present-day Latvia and Estonia. The Russians were initially successful in their campaign, but Poland-Lithuania became a commonwealth in 1569 and allied themselves with Livonia. Sweden supported Poland, and this alliance dragged Russia into prolonged war. Meanwhile, the Tatars took advantage of Russia's compromised situation and made successful attacks, even going so far as to burn down Moscow, except for the Kremlin. Now, the origins of the Oprichniki are a bit blurry and controversial. In 1564, for some reason, Ivan bailed out of Moscow with his wife, kids, the state's treasury, and a handful of other close staff, and ventured to an undisclosed location, which turned out to be a private complex in Alexandrovskaya Sloboda, now called Alexandro, over 100 kilometers or 62 miles northeast of Moscow. This was at the time a marshy and heavily forested area where Ivan had a essentially a fortress made for himself and his inner circle. Must have been a hell of a journey in December in Russia in 1564. Historians aren't sure why Ivan left Moscow, maybe because the Livonian War wasn't going well, or Ivan's state of mind was deteriorating into magical thinking and paranoia due to disease, and he was seeing enemies and conspirators everywhere. We don't know, and it's controversial. It, it appeared to some, or Ivan explicitly stated, that he intended to abdicate the throne. However, clergy persuaded Ivan otherwise. Ivan stayed on the throne, but 
on the condition that he be allowed to create, basically, as, uh, as scholar Charles J. Halperin describes it, quote, a state within a state. Ivan created a governing apparatus within the current government that Ivan had absolute rule over and within. This private governing body would be called the Oprichnina. In addition to being a governing body within an existing government, the Oprichnina also included a collection of different territories. Everything not included in the Oprichnina was called the Zemschina. The inhabitants of these territories were called Oprichniki, and it is estimated there were approximately 6,000 Oprichniki. These inhabitants weren't just poor peasants. The Oprichniki were soldiers, police, ministers, and bureaucrats in Ivan's government. Each had to pass some kind of background check and loyalty test, which had to be passed if they were to be rewarded with admission to this secret club, the Oprichnina, as well as land and wealth. This is where Ivan began to impose mass terror upon the Russian people and I can't stress enough how controversial this all is to this day, probably even more so now in light of current propaganda wars. We don't know exactly how many territories were incorporated into the Oprichnina, where the boundaries were, how many inhabitants over time. There's just a lot we don't know, seeing as this was over 500 years ago. Ivan's imposition of mass terror was conducted by, well, you guessed it, the Oprichniki secret police. Now, their exact purpose and evolution over time is unclear. To be honest, the Oprichniki has taken on sort of a mythical or, or legendary status. That added with the amount of time that's passed since their existence, it's difficult to decipher fact from fiction. There are some records that have survived this long, primary sources that is, and, and we'll talk, a, talk more about those and, and their authors shortly. So throughout this episode, if I say Oprichnina, think like the administration and districts. When I say Oprichniki, think of the secret police. They're similar, but different. The Oprichniki's function could have changed at the whim of Ivan himself. But what's consistent in different sources is their propensity to commit violent acts. Let's dive into who these guys were. The Oprichniki are said to have patrolled towns on black horses and wore all black clothing, like black robes. They sort of looked like, like, um, <clears throat> like a monastic order. They sort of remind me of the ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings. Prince Kerbsky, a man who fled Moscow, described them as, quote, the children of darkness. Sources indicate that they carried with them a severed dog's head and a broomstick, perhaps to convey a message that they would sniff out and sweep away traitors, or that the Oprichniki were Ivan's dogs and would sweep away traitors. Such accounts come from surviving writings from uh, Johann Trauba and Elert Krusa, two Livonian knights who were captured during the war, imprisoned, and eventually joined the Oprichniki themselves and documented their activities. Members of the secret police were said to have pledged loyalty to the Grand Prince and partake in some kind of ritual or initiation. It's, it sounds like a cult with a twist of Orthodox Christianity. It's weird. More on that later, though. Once a person was in this group, they operated with impunity and answered only to the Tsar or their own leadership. One of the Oprichniki's most notorious leaders was Malyuda 
Skuratov. He took part in the trial and execution of Vladimir of Staritsa, who was a cousin of Ivan's and therefore could have had a legitimate claim to Ivan's throne. Ivan also ordered the execution of Philip II for speaking out against the Oprichniki. Malyuda Skuratov was more than happy to personally strangle Philip II to death with his bare hands. Honestly, strangling is the most tame of things that the Oprichniki did to people. And what's super fucked up about this whole situation is that the Oprichniki performed a a lot of this stuff, um, torture and murders, for the Tsar's uh, enjoyment. Ivan would host dinners where uh, his his, uh, Oprichniks would torture victims while Ivan ate and laughed. One account tells of the Oprichniks bringing uh, women before the Tsar. It's probably happened to men, too, though. So, uh, But uh, the, the women were forced to strip naked and made to chase chickens around this this dining hall while the, the Oprichniks would use the women for target practice with their bows. Ivan visited the, the dungeons where he enjoyed watching his victims be tortured and, and murdered for his own entertainment. The Oprichniks carried their own daggers so they wouldn't have to wait for an executioner if they felt like killing somebody. Supposedly something like 20 people were tortured and killed in in, in this uh, in these dungeons or these torture chambers every day. 20 people tortured and murdered every day. Several sources indicate that the Oprichniki involved animals in their torture. Archbishop uh, Leonid of Novgorod was accused of treason, so Ivan threatened the archbishop by having him sewn with a threaded needle into a bearskin and having him chased and eventually eaten alive by starving dogs. Speaking of bears, some people condemned to death by the Tsar are said to have been tossed in pens with starving bears and mauled to death. Again, for Ivan's amusement. That sick son of a bitch. I think if you get entertainment by watching people be eaten alive by bears, everything else would be uh, underwhelming to you. Also, there's something wrong with you if you if you're into that. No, no suspenseful Super Bowl or World Cup match is ever going to match that level of sick amusement that Ivan must have felt. I know this sounds more like an episode on Ivan's playtime than on the Oprichniki, but the two are intertwined. This carnival of cartoonish violence and horrors committed by the Oprichniki secret police was oftentimes for Ivan. They were out watching, listening for suspected traitors and plots against the Tsar and subsequently feeding people to bears. I wonder if Alexa would do the same for you now in 2022. Hey Alexa, play Traitor Killed by Bear again, please. It's fun family entertainment. Even individuals in the Oprichniki accused their fellow Oprichniks of treason against the Tsar as factions within the Oprichniki itself feuded with each other. Other forms of enforcing terror included impalement, drowning, whipping, hanging, and straight-up mutilation. I said the Oprichniki had a twist of Orthodox Christianity to it. It appears Ivan had these periods of being pious. So he, and I speculate some members of the Oprichniki, would spend a night torturing people, laughing, using women for bow and arrow practice. Then the next day, they'd be in church praying and pleading with God for the forgiveness of sins. Quite a, <laughs> quite a contrast in behaviors. One moment, Ivan would be showering various uh, monasteries with treasures, and the next, he would be ordering people's deaths 
and attending the executions. So, this guy. I feel like Ivan would enjoy that episode of The Simpsons where Bart and Lisa are part of a, of a um, fairy tale realm. And they they uh, they find the house in the woods with Goldilocks in it, and the th- and then the th- the three bears arrive. So so um, they ditch the house, but Bart barricades the outside of the door. So when the bears find Goldilocks in their bed, they actually act like bears and chase her to the to the door. But since it's barricaded, she can't get <laughs> she can't get outside. So you so all you see is the door rattling from the outside while you hear the sounds of Goldie screaming in pain and terror. As the three bears devour her. Oh, and then blood seeps out from under the door. That must have been, I think that was a Treehouse of Horror episode. And if you just listen to that and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, look it up. It's on YouTube. You can you can look up that exact scene. Oh, man. Good, wholesome entertainment. I think that would have been uh, porn for Ivan the Terrible. Now, if I may invoke for a moment my medical podcast, Head Cold, there is speculation that Ivan suffered from neurosyphilis a bacterial infection that doesn't initially affect the brain, but if left untreated, patients can present with neurological symptoms and abnormal behavior. If you want to learn more about syphilis, check out the Tuskegee episode of my other podcast, Head Cold. Okay, let's talk about something a little more more lighthearted. Just kidding. We're going to talk about the Novgorod massacre. As usual, there is context. The city, Novgorod, holds significance in Russia. Great significance, actually. Nizhny Novgorod is located about 400 kilometers or 250 miles east of Moscow. About a six-hour drive according to Google Maps. It is not a Siberian city. Novgorod is economically important because it is located right on the junction between the Oka and the Volga rivers, two extremely important Russian waterways for commerce. We already talked about Moscow exerting its influence on different cities inside Russia to establish and maintain power across a wide geography while repelling foreign invaders from both the West and the Far East. Moscow exerted the same influence by force to incorporate the Novgorod Republic in the 15th century. Boyers, remember these are also the the wealthy elite, were sent to Novgorod by Muscovite princes to ensure Moscow's influence. Oh, Moscow, why are you like this? Because Novgorod sits at the convergence of the Oka and the Volga rivers, the city was able to establish powerful trade ties with people downstream, ties with which Moscow found threatening and would come to a head in future conflicts between the two cities. Jumping ahead a few centuries, during the First World War, with the uh, German advance in the east threatening Warsaw, Poland, then part of the Russian Empire, the local uh, Polytechnical Institute in Warsaw was relocated to Novgorod. Poland separated from Russia during the establishment of the Soviet Union, but the staff at the institute never returned. Maybe they, maybe they weren't allowed to. Whatever the reason for the staff not returning to Warsaw, the institute was one of the first schools of higher education in the new Soviet Union and later became the Lobachevsky State University of Nizhny Novgorod. There is a lot more to the significance of Novgorod, but just understand it's economically, culturally, and historically important. Now, for most of Ivan's reign, Russia was at war. Back then, like now, war was expensive, especially chronic war against multiple foes. 
Increasingly higher taxes were levied and the burden often fell to the peasants, as it always does, who had a difficult enough time existing with poverty, the Oprichniki famine, and epidemic disease. Oh, and just, you know, living in the 1500s. In the Novgorod region, Ivan's government dispatched surveyors to conduct inspections and investigations, which meant recording the views of the peasants who were unsurprisingly unhappy with high taxes. In fact, under the Boyer's rule, the peasants paid relatively little in tax, but since the initiation of Ivan's wars with Kazan and Livonia, taxes rose and remained high. Taxes, and the other hardship conditions I mentioned, was sowing displeasure towards Moscow. So what was the pretense of Ivan's sack of Novgorod? Things get complicated here, so I'm going to oversimplify this. Faced with war and internal discontent, Ivan and the administrative Oprichnina started seeing problems everywhere. Meanwhile, a fortress called Izborsk was captured by forces hostile to Russia, which shocked Ivan for a number of reasons, principally because Izborsk was supposed to be impenetrable. For context, the ruins of Izborsk are in Russia and very close to Estonia's eastern border with Russia. So a man named Teterin had de defected from the Russian side and led a detachment to capture Izborsk. Teterin dressed like a member of the Oprichniki and ordered the gate to be opened. So Izborsk kinda got Trojan horsed. Ivan retook Izborsk and ordered all the Russian secretaries and assistants of Ivan's own government executed for cooperating with Turtin, or, or Teterin. Ivan didn't see the situation as the fortress administrators being tricked, but rather in on a conspiracy with Teterin. To Ivan, this couldn't have been a an isolated incident. There had to be a broader conspiracy against the Tsar. This line of thinking implicated other areas where the government knew people were unhappy, like Novgorod. Ivan decided to preemptively squash any ideas Novgorod had to, air quotes, join Izborsk in rebellion, but remember, the people at Izborsk didn't purposely give up the fort because they were tricked. Ivan first ordered Novgorod inhabitants to be exiled. 500 families were relocated, thousands of men, women, and children. Adding fuel to the fire was that Ivan's ally in Sweden, King Eric XIV, was overthrown in a coup. The Oprichnina compared the Swedish coup to the situation in Izborsk and convinced themselves that Novgorod was going to follow in the Swedes' footsteps. The Oprichnina successfully framed the prince of Novgorod, Vladimir Andreevich, of attempting to assassinate the Tsar via poisoning. And this is kind of an interesting story. They framed Vladimir by arresting a palace cook who traveled to Novgorod for ingredients, particularly fish, and that detail will be important soon. Uh, the fish intended for, uh, for, Ivan's, for Ivan the Terrible. Allegedly, the cook actually entered a conspiracy with Prince Vladimir to kill Ivan. The cook confessed probably under torture, and that the allegations were indeed true. Who wouldn't? And wowie zally, the Oprichniki found poison and large sums of money in the cook's possession. I wonder how that got there. I think they planted it. This was enough evidence for Ivan to label Prince Vladimir as an enemy rather than Ivan's cousin. Yeah, Prince Vladimir was Ivan the Terrible's cousin. And this is also odd, because there was some, like, ancient 
religious ruler reason that Ivan couldn't just straight up execute his cousin, the Oprichniki had to beat the shit out of a poor chef to air quotes connect Prince Vladimir to a conspiracy to assassinate the Tsar in order to label legally Vladimir an enemy rather than his cousin. And therefore, okay in the eyes of the church for Ivan to take action. Of all the things Ivan cares about, he adheres to this weird rule. Not feeding people to bears, no, that's that's fine. He needs to make sure that he can kill his cousin the right way. The proper bureaucratic way. Remember, guys, if you're going to kill your cousin, make sure it's legal. Just kidding. Don't kill your cousin. I mean, this is... <laughs> This is the guy, Ivan the Terrible, beat his own son to death with, a, with his royal scepter in a fit of rage. But he just, he just needs to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in order to kill his cousin. It's so bizarre. Prince Vladimir is ordered to leave Novgorod, but on his way out, he's stopped by the Black Horse Riders. The secret police, the Obrichniki, and they arrest him. Malyuta Skuratov, the notorious and bloodthirsty Oprichniki leader, is one of the judges at Prince Vladimir's trial. Can you guess the outcome of the trial? They, they let Prince Vladimir go to a spa with beautiful Russian women, great food, plenty of money, and he was free to pursue a life of religious fulfillment. No, Prince Vladimir was sentenced to death. No spa for you. The only spa you get is six feet underground, Vladdy Vlad. But... But Ivan again hesitates to kill his cousin. Wouldn't it be great if, of all things, Ivan thought he'd go to hell for only killing his cousin and not, you know, the other horrendous shit that he did? Instead, Ivan convinced Prince Vladimir to commit suicide by drinking poisoned wine. Ivan also ordered the execution of Vladimir's wife and their nine-year-old daughter. The poor cook, Chef Boyardee. Just kidding. I just thought that was really clever when I wrote it, because, like, Boyar and... Boyard, Chef Boyardee. Okay, the cook, his sons, and the fishermen, I said the fish was going to be important, who were implicated in the conspiracy were also killed. One account says that they were executed before Vladimir. Traba and Krusa wrote that instead they were tortured for show despite making an agreement with the judges, which included a local psychopath, Malyuta Skuratov, following Vladimir's execution suicide, the Oprichnina declared Novgorod be invaded December 1569. Ivan and his forces arrived in Novgorod on January 8th, 1570. They were met at the bridge over the Volkhov River by priests carrying crosses and religious icons, but this did not seem to bother Ivan. Ivan demanded to see Novgorod's Archbishop Pemen, Pimen, Pimen, P-I-M-E-N, uh, Pimen. And upon the Archbishop's arrival, Ivan threw out allegations of treason. Now, remember, Ivan and his forces arrived at Novgorod to sack the place and murder people. But while screaming at the archbishop at the bridge, Ivan thought it would be a good idea to go to mass. So weird Ivan feels the need to go to mass, fully knowing he's going to slaughter a bunch of people brutally uh, right after it's done. <sighs> after the service, the archbishop invited the Tsar and the Oprichniki to his home for lunch. A big mistake. It wasn't long into the meal before Ivan again started yelling at the archbishop and had him arrested. The Oprichniki proceeded to plunder the archbishop's home. You know, my wife and I like to host, and we've never really had a bad guest, with maybe one exception, but we've never been accused of treason in the middle of, uh, uh, in the middle of dinner and arrested. Then the savagery and massacre went into full swing. Uh, keep in mind, 
This occurred in January in Russia, so it's cold. The Oprichniki threw women and children with their hands bound from the bridge into the Fulkov River. Other Oprichniks patrolled the river in boats and the riverbanks armed with spears and axes, waiting to attack survivors of the fall through the ice into the freezing water. I did say earlier that some of the Oprichniki's actions are controversial and murky because it happened so long ago and records have been destroyed, but the events of the Novgorod massacre are noted in two different sources from two different authors that collaborate each other's writings. Judges like the Oprichniki leader, Malyuda Skiratov, ordered horrific tortures like having people roasted over open flames. Some were strung up by their hands and had their eyebrows literally singed or burned off. The source I relied on heavily for the Novgorod massacre says that, quote, wretched people, which I don't know what that means, but maybe like people without a home or the mentally ill, were tied by a rope to sleds and dragged around Novgorod and through the icy Volkov River. Families were not spared. Families of suspected traitors were also killed. The Oprichniki summoned and interrogated the Boyer noblemen and their families. Show trials carried on for weeks, with hundreds of people put on trial, mostly for treason. But this was not entirely practical. It's not efficient to drag the trials of hundreds of people out for weeks. So the Oprichniki moved on to sacking and looting monasteries and cathedrals, taking priceless artifacts and other valuables, and generally desecrating these places of worship. It's so weird that Ivan would worship and pray and then do shit like this. He probably attended a mass that later was sacked and desecrated by his people. Truly somebody who only cared about power. The Oprichniki would sell stolen goods from around Novgorod to in local markets. Some ransacked homes of individual residents of Novgorod. Those who resisted were killed on the spot. After the sacking in Novgorod, the Oprichniki moved on to another city suspected of plotting a coup against Ivan, a town called Peskov. I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian, so I'm probably butchering these names. Upon their arrival, people in Peskov showed immediate submission to Ivan's will. Terror worked. The estimated death toll of the Novgorod massacre is between 15 and 60,000 people. That's obviously not including the pile of bodies the Oprichniki racked up in their torture dungeons. The Oprichnia went on to sort of occupy Novgorod and implement a government loyal to Ivan. The Oprichnina lasted seven years, inflicting terror and governance until 1572, when Russia had to unite against the threat posed by the Crimean Tartars. The Oprichniki failed to defend Moscow from Tartars burning the city down. Therefore, the Oprichnina were integrated with the Zemshchina to yield a stronger defense. Remember, the Zemshchina is everything outside of the Oprichnina. Ivan himself later died in 1584. I briefly mentioned Ivan uh, bludgeoned his son to death. This is true, and Ivan's actions meant he destroyed the male heir to the throne and set the course for the end of the Rurik dynasty in Russia, and set the stage for the Romanov dynasty, which we will talk about in part two of this series on Russia. Okay, after all this darkness, I think we should lighten it up a bit. With some dark humor... In my research, I found a gem of an old TV show called History Bites. History Bites ran for, for, for 10 seasons between 1998 and 2004 and was hosted by uh, Canadian uh, uh, comedy writer Rick Green. The show parodied uh, what it would be like if television had been around 
for the past 5,000 years. The show focused on some historical figures or event portrayed in the news or maybe a talk show and uh, multiple parody channels were aired around the centerpiece show as if somebody was uh, channel surfing. History Bites Season 4, Episode 8 did a bit where Ivan the Terrible was a guest on Oprah. Take a listen. Today's show is about pain and grieving and loss and hopefully about hope and recovering from that pain. Joining us in the studio today is a very special guest, Ivan the Terrible. Oh, oh Ivan the Terrible. A man who has been around pain for much of his life, mostly other people's pain. But now, <laughs> after a tragic death of his son, he is dealing with his own loss. People welcome Russia's oh, ruler and the star of today's show, Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, let's, let's clap him. Oh, there he is. Thank you for joining us Giant on the show, beard. Mr. Terrible. Mr. Well, Terrible. Thank you for having me. And please, call me Ivan. Okay, call me. Ivan, mine. first, I wanted to offer you our deepest condolences on the loss of your son, Ivan Jr. I understand he was Sad. the apple of your eye. Yes, Oprah, a chunk off the old block. We were close. We often did executions together. Aww. and torturing confessions out of innocent victims, too. Like, I really miss the little guy. Sometimes now I'm torturing a guy and I dig in, pull out some innards, and I want to say, hey, son, look at this. And then I remember. Oh, sad. Sad. He remembers. He's gone. <sighs> Must be tough. I love that. I love the dark humor there. Uh, that, ladies and gents, was Ivan the Terrible Secret Police, the Oprichniki. If you made it this far and want more, I hope to release part two of this series fairly soon on the SARS Okrana Secret Police. If you like this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe and review wherever you found this show. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Secret Police Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope I see you in the next one. I know this is difficult, Ivan, but I'd like to talk about the death of your son. Zarvich Ivan was bludgeoned to death with an iron-tipped staff. Yes. Little Ivan was dead. No, no, no. He didn't die until a couple days later. I lost a son and broke my favorite staff. <laughs> <laughs>